Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 27 minutes to 10 o'clock. Lots of response to the swallows issue on email, Twitter and SMS. I promise you after 10 o'clock, we're going to uh, to focus on that. I'll read some of your contributions. But right now, let's say good morning to Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. Good morning. Lovely to chat to you again. Okay. I'm very interested in this new test uh, to detect every virus infection we've, you've ever had. I want to know more about the test and whether that offers any insight into what is likely to happen to a person once all that information is collated. Does it give any indication of what other viruses you are likely to, uh, uh, to, to, to suffer from in the future? Yeah, good morning, Reedy. Well, this paper which has come out in the journal Science is really a comprehensive test that can tell a person, regardless of how old they are, about any virus infection that could have or has infected them during their lifetime. You might say, why would anyone really want to know that? Because most viruses are what we call smash-and-grab infections. The virus comes along, it makes you acutely unwell for a few days, Mm -hmm. then your immune system kicks in, kicks it out, and you're better. But actually, they, they do leave a legacy, these viruses. There's an indelible fingerprint left in your immune system because your immune system has reacted to that virus and mounted a response so that if the virus tries to infect you again, it can't come back. But more importantly, what we don't really understand is how does the sum total of viral infections you have over your lifetime affect your health ultimately? Does having certain combinations of infections at certain times in your life increase your risk of getting, for instance, diabetes Mm. or asthma or maybe developing a cancer later? Now, it's been impossible to answer that question because once a virus has been eliminated by the immune system, there's no virus left in the body for you to detect. But there is, of course, this immune fingerprint. And what researchers at Harvard University, this is Stephen Elledge and his colleagues, have managed to do is to come up with a very clever test that means that just from a drop of patient blood, they can extract the antibodies which are in there. And the antibodies are the tiny pieces of protein that you make to fight off infection. Mm -hmm. And each antibody is unique to an infection you have had. So therefore, if you work out what antibodies are there, you can work out what infection a person has had. And they have this test, which can detect any one of 206 different uh, species of virus that infect humans, thousands of strains of those viruses. And they can do it with very high sensitivity and very, very high, in fact, 100% specificity. And they've tested 569 people so far. They found that the average person had in their tests about 10 or evidence of having fought off at least 10 different viruses. One or two lucky people in the study showed evidence of having caught and fought 
84 different virus infections. I, I read the study to my wife and she said, well, that must have been me because I catch absolutely everything. Um, but this is important, not just because it means we can now begin to ask these questions about, well, what sorts of prior infections are associated with diseases that we get now or are going to get in the future, but also you could use this as an incredibly cheap screening test for many, many diseases, including HIV, hepatitis B and hepatitis C. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567 or double one double eight three zero seven zero two. We are taking your SMSs on 31702 and 31567. Just have a, an inquiry about the Harvard scientist who was working on this. You said it's Stephen Ellich, is that right, uh, Chris? Yeah, that's right. We'll put the paper and mm. the references and things on the Naked Scientist website after this. You go to nakedscientist.com slash news and uh, all the news stories appear there with references to the original articles so that people can see exactly what the papers are that we're basing these news stories on. Okay. Stephanie in Ranfontein, good morning. Good morning, Reedy. Good morning, Chris. As children, we were always told never to swallow gum. <laughs> Should you swallow it? How bad is it for you? What is, what is what? What does it do? Okay. Well, gum probably is not going to do you a huge amount of harm, to be honest. We tell people don't swallow it, but I don't think that's based on any sound evidence. If you swallowed a very, very large amount of it, then I suppose it's possible, like swallowing a very, very large amount of anything, it could be bad for you. But most of this stuff, when you put acid in the stomach and digestive juices onto it, it actually falls to pieces and forms it, or, or forms a very hard, knotty thing that's not very different to some of the food items that go through your intestine. As long as it's kept wet, it doesn't become sticky and there's nothing to really stick on inside your body. So I wouldn't panic too much about swallowing the odd bit. But if you swallowed huge amounts, then obviously if you swallow huge amounts of anything, there can be health deleterious effects. And of course, if you swallow bubble gum, you might actually be blowing bubbles with an unusual part of your anatomy, which may have consequences for your underwear. <laughs> Moses, you've got a very fascinating question. Good morning to you. Good morning, Hi, Chris. Just, just, just as a matter of interest, I just want to know, uh, seeing that uh, blood is as, uh, is as scarce as water in our country, um, is there any harm if we use uh, animal blood uh, for the human use? Okay, if there's a blood shortage, can animal blood be used for the same purpose? Regrettably... No. The only animal blood that's suitable for a human transmission is another human. And the reason for this is that blood cells, like pretty much every cell in your body, are decorated with markers called antigens. These are mixtures of proteins and sugars that that stick onto the surfaces of cells and they act like tiny flags. The immune system can see these markers and the immune system knows the combination of markers that should be on you and if it sees the wrong combination of markers, it knows this is not part of you. And this is why when we do organ transplants, for example, lung transplants, kidney and liver transplants, you have to make sure that you achieve a close match between the donor patient, the person who's giving the organ, and the recipient, the person who's having it put in. Otherwise, there'll be a dramatic immune response to the organ and it'll be rejected, and quite possibly the person will die. It's the same with blood. If you give an incompatible blood transfusion, these markers on the surfaces of the cells will be recognised as foreign, the cells will all glue together and agglutinate, and this will block up blood vessels and have catastrophic effects on the recipient's health. So we can't do this with with even the wrong blood group of human blood because there are three different blood groups. There's group A, group B and group O. If you give the wrong blood groups to certain people, there can be catastrophes. Animals have totally different markers on the surfaces of their cells and the result of that 
is that if you put those cells into the human, there would be a very powerful response which would agglutinate or stick together those blood cells and block up the blood vessels. Mm. Having said that, last night, literally, I was talking to researchers in Canada. This is uh, David Kwan and his colleagues, and they have come up with a, an enzyme which they've borrowed from Streptococcus pneumoniae, a, a bacterium that causes chest infections. And this bacterium makes an enzyme which strips away these markers from the surfaces of cells. Now, the, the, the bacterium does it because it wants to eat the sugars on the surfaces of the cells and use them for energy. But these researchers in Canada have found that you can do this very usefully, strip away these antigens from the cell surface and remove their antigenicity, their ability to stimulate this immune response. And they've got it working so that almost now you could take any kind of human blood and you could give it to almost anybody else. And one therefore could speculate that maybe in the future you could take animals' blood and maybe pull the same stunt on it, although at the moment it's not ready for use. So it'll be another 10 or so years before this is even in the clinic for human blood, but it's not beyond the realms of possibility that we might be able to do that one day in the future. Ross, I see your call, and John in Hyde Park, I see you coming to you in a second. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. We have Chris on the line from the UK. Satisfy your curiosity about the world in which we live on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. Lots of calls coming through. Let's go to Ross in Thornton. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, you say the world in which we live. My question actually is about the worlds outside our mm-hmm. world. Okay. And I'm particularly interested in the work of Frank Drake, uh, who promulgated the Drake Equation in 1961 in Southern California. And I've been wanting to know if there's been any advances on this, because he put forward the distinct possibility that there was intelligent and communicating life out there, but it hadn't chosen to communicate with us. Good morning. Yes, well, this, this equation, the idea was that people were trying to work out roughly on the basis of what we knew about the universe, the likelihood that there might be intelligent life, maybe in some way similar to us, somewhere out there. And really, we've understood a lot more about the universe since the equation was postulated. We have a reasonable concept of how big the universe is now. We have a very accurate idea as to how old the universe is now, 13.8 billion years. And what the initial equation was based on, it was a sort of mathematical expression which said, well, how big is the universe? How many stars are there in the universe? How many galaxies in the universe? And so on. And then said, well, on that basis, how many planets a bit like the Earth are there with stars a bit like the sun, with planets the same distance that the Earth is from the sun so we can have liquid water and all that kind of thing. And it came up with a a vague number as to the prospects that there might be life. Uh, I think that still holds. But on the other hand, there have been some more recent studies which have enabled us to spot planets a bit like the Earth or very watery planets around stars, which are a lot older than we had previously anticipated could exist with Earth-like planets around them. Our own Earth is about four and a half, five billion years old. We've now since, actually in the last 12 months, found a planet a bit like the Earth, slightly larger, around a star a bit like the Sun, um, which is actually nearly 12 billion years old. In other words, that much earlier in the universe's evolution, planets like the Earth came along, so much, much earlier than we thought they had come along. And this means you might therefore have a higher likelihood of life 
like us being complicated and intelligent existing because it's had a lot longer to potentially be evolving than we had previously anticipated. So my own view is that the vastness of the universe and out there in the universe there's about a billion galaxies and each of those billion galaxies has got a billion stars in it. Mm -hmm. I think the likelihood of there being uh, an, a planet like the Earth with liquid water which we think is a prerequisite for life I think the likelihood is so high that life elsewhere in the universe is an inevitability. Ross, does that answer your question? Yes. Thank it you does. so I'm much. Just Lovely wondering question. wondering if they wouldn't like to communicate with us, though. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, <laughs> Ross. That's Ross in Thornton. Who came in first? I think it was uh, Leon in Linden. Good morning. Good morning. Um, um, yeah, let me take you. Can I take your speakerphone or can the producer put me back a bit later on off speakerphone? Okay, let, let's just try. It sounds better now. Just carry on. Okay. Does that sound better? Yes, it does. Okay. Uh, my son a while ago made some hot chocolate in a flask. It's the type of flask that has a plastic outer lining and a glass inner. And the glass inner broke into little pieces. It is very thin glass. And, um, but he carried on drinking the hot chocolate. And I was quite horrified. But the GP said, it's no problem. Um, for some other reason, uh, the glass can go through your system and not cut you up along the way. Um, I just wanted to check with the naked scientist whether this was true or, or how this works. Hmm. I wouldn't recommend it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, glass is a very hard substance. It breaks and forms very sharp edges. In fact, there's some very nice um, Aboriginal arrowheads that were made in Australia in the early days of the colonisation of Australia by Western civilizations, and they brought beer bottles and things, and you can now find arrowheads and other things that the Aboriginals were fashioning from glass uh, that they found that these colonists had left behind. And it's very, very sharp, and that's because of... The crystal structure of glass is a, it's a super cool liquid and it breaks into these very sharp edges. Therefore, I would be very, very cautious about eating or drinking anything that may have glass in it because it could lacerate your insides. And the way in which your intestines work is through peristalsis. You have a, a tube, a sausage-shaped tube, and there are boluses or blobs of food in there and one part of the intestine constricts and narrows itself down and this propels the food forward in front of it. Well, if it happens to constrict around an area where there is a sharp shard of glass, then it could easily penetrate through the wall of the intestine. It could become embedded in the wall of the intestine. It could even perforate right through Mm -hmm. the intestine and then you can have all kinds of consequences. So um, given that this has already happened, if everything has remained well, then probably you got away with it but i would certainly recommend if you have a, a breakage like that or any kind of um, sharp object contamination of food in the future don't go near it because it could could be really really bad for your health yeah yeah john in hyde park thanks for your patience welcome to the show yes hi mm. um i'd just like to know you know when people die and all the rest of it and you get buried and all the rest of it and you get bacteria and you get eaten up and all that, and all that stuff if you're an astronaut and you're in space and you're in your space you, let's say you die do you still get eaten up, or if you're outside your outside your spacesuit, do you does the um because there's no bacteria in space, that's, I, I believe, um do you sort of don't decompose, or what's the story on that one? Gosh, what a morbid thought! But the answer is that your body is a huge stew pot full of bacteria, and so if you died inside your spacesuit, there's a nice little ecosystem in there because although the oxygen that you need to survive would have run out, nonetheless there is energy in the form of other other types of molecules that bacteria can extract energy from, and so you would just stew away and rot away inside your spacesuit because all the time that there was energy to be had from the chemicals that were making you 
then the microorganisms in there will be able to extract a lot of that energy and slowly the community will evolve and develop to exploit the available food sources until there's not much of you left that can be digested. And it's an interesting concept, this, and it's an interesting point you raise because actually South Africa is very famous for... Uh, a wonderful discovery that was made almost 10 years ago in one of the very deep gold mines. And what scientists discovered was that when they were excavating a certain part of one of the mines near Johannesburg, there was all this water began to issue from the side of the tunnel. And when they took samples of the water, it was clear that the water had been out of contact with the rest of the world, the rest of the planet, for millions of years, maybe 40 to 100 million years. And you can tell that because you can look at the composition of isotopes. These are different forms of the same chemicals that are in water. And so the scientists could tell this water had not had contact contact with the rest of the world for millions of years but when they analyzed it they were gobsmacked to see it was a thriving hive of microbial life so where were these bacteria getting their energy from it's a whole community living in this water the initial energy comes from radiation in the rock and when a uranium atom decays it splits water apart and the water that's split apart turns into something very reactive that then attacks some sulfides some fool's gold in the rock and releases other chemicals that other microorganisms can prey on and those microorganisms feed other microorganisms so you have a whole community based on who would have thought radiation and uh, this is why we think that there's a high likelihood that life can exist elsewhere in the universe regardless of whether there's a, the right sort of star because you you could actually be driving uh, chemistry and life through energy and for instance radioactive decay Here's an SMS here. I think we have answered a question about uh, uh, defrosting food and, uh, you know, the dangers of refreezing it. But somebody wants to know, uh, can you still use meat if it had been in the freezer for one year? That's from Anna. Well, when you freeze something, if you vacuum pack it so there's no exchange of chemicals in the meat with the rest of the freezer, then it will deteriorate less quickly but even so, despite the low temperature, there are still some chemical reactions happening very, very slowly, which includes chemical reactions that degrade and, deter and cause deterioration of the food. So the longer you keep something for, as a general rule, the less good quality it's going to be, unless you can completely stop those chemical reactions, which lead to the breakdown of the food. Now, the lower the temperature is, the lower the rate of deterioration it's probably going a bit far, though, to put your roast beef or whatever, or your steak, in liquid nitrogen at minus 200 degrees. That's probably going a bit far. And that's why we're happy with the idea of putting things at about minus 20 in the freezer, because that's a good compromise between spending on electricity and convenience and slowing down the food de decay rate. But bottom line longer you leave it the worse it's going to taste mm. but is it actually going to be bad for you well the growth of microorganisms at minus 20 is extremely slow if not zero and therefore it's very unlikely that there's going to be anything bad for you in the meat but it just won't taste very nice because the the, the physical chemis, chemical structure will have deteriorated and and it's that that makes meat taste nice in the first place mm. so you you won't have a very nice meal necessarily but it won't necessarily be oh, bad no. for you and i just cook that meat or don't buy so much meat in the future uh, somebody wants to know is there a link between our blood group and the diseases or infections we're likely to uh, have in our lifetime 
Yes, there's some evidence that that is true. There's evidence linking uh, susceptibility to norovirus infection that causes gastroenteritis, vomiting and diarrhoea, and certain blood groups. And this is because the antigens, the markers that are on the surfaces of the blood cells, are also expressed on other parts of the body and therefore they can serve as a marker and also as an entry receptor. The virus can, can use these things to get into cells. And therefore, if you carry some of these markers on your cell surface, you're more susceptible to certain infections. So yes, it's certainly true to say that we are aware of some infections that are more common in people with certain blood groups. Right, and then, uh, Chris, we had a conversation, I can't even remember when it started or how it started, but it was a conversation about concentration, what actually happens when when you are um, uh, concentrating. And, uh, oh yes, it started, my producer just reminded me, there's a rule in South African road running and people don't adhere to it, that we're not allowed to use our iPods as we're running, our, our earphones. You have to concentrate, you have to be 100% present. A lot of runners are upset because they need the music to get, get them going, especially in a marathon. And I, I kind of support that because, you know, I think I've said on the show that I, I immerse myself in whatever I'm doing at that time. I need to concentrate on that and nothing else. So recently I had an experience, I was driving through and there's one woman going through an intersection I had right of way she didn't she was running she had her, her, ear, her earphones in and I tried to hoot and she still didn't hear me because she was so focused on her run and whatever it is that she was um, she was listening to at that time even if I were to stop her five minutes later and say did you see what just happened I don't even think she was aware because she, her, she, it was an out-of-body experience she just was not present so it started a conversation about concentrating can you concentrate a hundred percent on a on a lot of things at the same time almost certainly not and your brain has evolved for that to be the case because there is so much information being collected by our senses and funneled into our nervous system all the time that if we were to try to attend to all of it, we would quite literally go mad. You could not attend mm. to all of the things that are coming into you. So your brain has evolved and adapted to work a bit like the spotlight that you have on a stage. You have a stage set and you have the scenery and you have all the actors on the stage, but your attention is focused on where the spotlight is on the lead performer. That doesn't mean that all of the other actors have disappeared. It doesn't mean that all the other action has stopped. It just means your attention is being focused on Mm -hmm. where the action is. And our attention for the world around us is very, very similar to that. All this information is coming in and it's being filtered by your nervous system and a subset of that information is being presented to your consciousness and you're being asked, attend to this. And the other interesting thing about this is that the brain is very sensitive to change. We tend to screen out things that are invariant, they're not changing. We ignore those and we focus on things that are changing. And this is why you raise music as a possible thing to consider. This is why a sound which is changing is very, very distracting. Fire alarms tend to have multiple tones. They don't just just sound one bell now. They sound high note, low note, like a dee, 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 because it's very hard to ignore something that is changing, and especially if it's changing in an unpredictable way. You, you you will have to attend to that. And that's why we have evolved like that, because if you're sort of sitting around in the jungle and you smell smoke, uh, apart from all the other lovely smells you're smelling in the jungle, the smoke's the important one because it's suddenly appeared and something's changed and you pay attention to it. And that makes you do something. Uh, when you're running, if you've got a nice steady beat going and some music, it's helping you to zone out to some of the other things that are going on in your body and focus. And also people do run in time to music that you can recruit 
certain functions in your brain to go along with the music and you get into a sort of stride which goes with the beat of your music and it does help people to perform better. There is scientific evidence that actually if you exercise to music you mm. will actually perform better. Mm. Okay. Well, Chris, thank you very much for chatting to us. We see you again next week. I'm looking forward to it already. Thanks, Reedy. Bye-bye. I know some of you have been tweeting that you couldn't hear Chris or there was something wrong. I don't know what that was all about. Uh, And one of you, one person asked if there'll be a podcast. There's always a podcast of The Naked Scientist. You can download it from our website. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.